0: So, here we are, Friday, May 11th, theoretically the eve before we adjourn uh, on Saturday the 12th from the legislature, the uh, 2017-18 legislative session, biennium, and uh, I have to be, we have a funeral to be at because uh, Governor Phil Hoff has unfortunately died, and uh, his funeral is at the same time as the heat of the house on my radio show. So I have four legislators joining me for dinner at the Capitol Plaza uh, to discuss a particular
1: issue, which what, which one were we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the opioid crisis and about practice and policy related to that. So...
2: Workforce work development.
1: And workforce development. Yes. So I have two
0: progressives, uh, three progressives, even the, prog- the leader of the progressive party, and uh, a trusty Democrat here to protect me in case I incriminate myself. <laughs> so hopefully the, the sound quality will work and my listeners in Randolph uh, and other towns will be able to hear us clearly. But um, I guess instead of trying to introduce them myself, I should just let you each introduce yourselves. So uh,
1: Brian China, who's been on my show before, could start. Hi, this is Brian Chena. I'm a representative from Burlington, and I'm also a social worker, so my perspective is a mix of being a legislator as well as practicing social work in the trenches.
3: I'm Selena Colburn, and I'm also a representative from Burlington, and I serve on the House Judiciary Board.
2: Hi, I'm Chip Troiano, and I live in Stannard. I represent Hardwick, Standard, and Walden in the, in the legislature. And I'm a retired criminal defense investigator who dealt with large numbers of people suffering from uh, opiate use disorder.
4: Yeah. Wow. And it became
2: my priority.
4: <clears throat> and I'm uh, Robin Chestnut-Tangerman, representing the towns of Tinmouth, Middletown Springs, Paula, Wells, and Rupert. <laughs> um, wow. And probably my in on this conversation is that I live near Rutland. Yeah. Well, geez.
0: <laughs> so, and I am the your your favorite of the whole bunch, right? Jay Hooper. Uh, I am a represent. I represent Brookfield, Braintree, Randolph, Granville, and Roxbury. And for the dedicated listeners, you all know that I am on the radio from eleven to noon every Saturday with my show, The Heat of the House to talk about various issues, like like this one. Uh, I serve on the House Ag and Forestry Committee, so uh, I don't have that much for uh, knowledge about the opiates, the intricacies of the opiates crisis, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but we haven't really done uh, enough on this, right? We haven't done very much this session For dealing, I mean, after all, Governor Shumlin made his third state of the state address all about the opiates problem, and it feels to me like we're not uh, making progress on that. So, uh, what was the term, Brian, that you wanted
1: to talk about? Maybe I could start by just talking broadly about harm reduction, which is a philosophy for approaching substance use disorder, but not only substance use. Harm reduction is a philosophy that can be used to address any risky behavior that people engage in, and in harm reduction, we we approach people with withholding our judgment, so we don't judge people and we don't judge what they do. So, so harm you you um, practice. This? I practice harm reduction. I've been practicing a harm reduction approach since 1998. Uh, There was a pilot project in Vermont in 1998 where uh, outreach workers in Burlington were trained in harm reduction and we had trainers come to Vermont, but we also went to New York City and shadowed outreach workers on the streets in Midtown Manhattan and the Lower East Side. And we got to see what they were doing with heroin addicts on the street in New York and then came back and applied that to Burlington where we've had a heroin problem as long as I've lived and worked there, which is since 1998. There just wasn't as much publicity or attention then. So, um, what um, what towns are the worst in this state? I can't answer that question. Yeah. I don't know if someone else can. Okay. I feel like it's widespread. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it
2: is. Burlington, Rutland are probably some of the uh, because they're more urban, more populated areas. I think that that's what you're seeing is that uh, you know, there's like a uh, more usage and um, and less resources.
3: Uh-huh. And I Franklin County.
4: I think it's yep. that it the, really the, the Burlington and Rutland get the attention. yeah. yeah. But small towns true. Here. Yeah, our that's sure here. true. It is widespread.
2: Yeah. It's widespread. And to pick up on what Brian was saying, you know, um, a, a lot of uh, uh, community uh, meetings that I've been to have really... Uh, um, I bring up the, the matter of stigma because there are still so many people um, in our communities that feel that... Um, Substance abuse disorder or opiate use is some sort of a low life um, situation where um, they are, are, are they lack compassion for people that compassion that are for people. And I think that really hinders. Recovery in the in the, within the community because you know you just I mean if you feel bad about what you're doing and which most people do uh, yes. then and the community is down on you it's really not a conducive uh, atmosphere for recovery.
0: So I have a specific question for you, Chip, uh, because uh, you're a veteran of the Vietnam War. Um, do you have a lot of uh, veteran colleagues who are? Um, who have drug
2: problems? Uh, no, no, not- no, no, no. I think I think a lot of Vietnam era veterans have really grown out of it and uh, have overcome it. I, I'm not see. I don't see um, that happening a lot uh, throughout the state of Vermont, at least. Yeah.
1: Can I go back to um, what I was saying about the harm reduction practice a little bit? Because what Chip said about stigma, I want to just go back to that. So when when a pr- from the philosophy of harm reduction in practice, when we approach someone from a therapeutic role the idea isn't is, is to try to help them to heal right and so when from a harm reduction approach you withhold judgment and you don't apply the stigma that people will have so um, you meet people where they're at you meet them where they're at in their process try to help them understand why they're doing what they do and what are the risks and also what are the benefits of what they're doing what are they getting from it yeah. and then empowering people yeah. to make choices to get those benefits from less risky activities. So for example, if a person, let's move away from opioids for a second. Sure. If a person's smoking cigarettes to cope with stress, you yeah. might help up you might help a person understand what risks come with smoking cigarettes so they know what the consequences of the behavior are, but then you also look at what are the cigarettes doing for them and try to help them think of ways to address that through other means Mm -hmm. so that can be applied towards any risky behavior in fact harm reduction from what I've been trained came from Europe and a lot of the training I had came from people who worked with prostitutes and it started out as sexual behavior and then transferred over to substance use Uh and so I just wanted to put that out there that you know when you're meeting when you're working with a person from a practice angle on harm reduction you're trying to meet a person where they're at have a low threshold and easy access to treatment and to the things that will help them in their recovery. And yeah. I think when we look at on the policy level, what are we doing on a policy level to increase access for people to the to, to ways to help reduce the risk of yeah. what they're doing and also get the benefits in different ways. Yeah. And I think that's where we've hit a lot of walls in this session and others probably can give more detail about that
4: piece. If I can expand this picture yeah. a little bit. That, um... <clears throat> Until this year I spent three years teaching in a, a program for at-risk teens and what we saw there was a lot of generational abuse of, of uh, opioids but also all of the other factors that lead into that you know lack of education lack of opportunities lack of role models lack mm. of um, alternatives and and the need to, to uh, show people Mm-hmm. what the alternatives are, the outreach and, and the modeling, the education um, to, to avoid the addiction in the first place. So um, you, so
0: Robin living in Rutland, do you, or well, you don't, you're not in I'm, Rutland. No, you're, I'm you're about in?
4: 15 miles away from Rutland. Irisburg? I, I live in Middletown Springs.
0: It's a little, oh right, yeah. Okay.
4: There's, there's Ira, is oh, one Ira. of the next towns I Ira's right. is Ira's the
0: little lightning bolt town? Yeah. Yeah. So do you see... You live in the rural outskirts. Mm-hmm. Do you see people uh, in your community in the rural part affected? Uh, and I, I, do you observe a lot of people in, like, what's it look like down there?
4: In Rutland, it's easy to see, In the small towns it's harder. It's more private. Yeah. Um, I have a own a, a rental property, a house, the house that I started with and, until I built my own house. Yeah. And um, we have had tenants there who have been. Uh, really struggling with with addiction issues, and but but you don't. It's not obvious. You know, they're, they're they're functioning. Yeah. Holding jobs. Um, and it and it's it's hard to understand the the depth of the problem. I would say. Look at that.
0: The house salad just showed up. That's a great breaking point. Maybe they'll go to a commercial break right here,
4: right
0: now. <laughs> Well, that's the good uh, thing about this too. I get to edit this later on. Mm-hmm, yeah. I could, I could uh, take a clip of something that you, one of you guys said in a different uh, setting and put it in there, make it sound like you. I can manipulate your statements. Take us out of yeah. That, yeah. 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 yeah, I'm going yeah. to chop. That. That's what we call chopped and screwed, right? Attack in- ad <laughs> material.
1: Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, attack ads. Actually, it was funny. Uh, just before we sat down to eat, when we were waiting for a table, um, we were discussing the <laughs> the upcoming re-election campaigns that we're going to deal with. And uh, Chestnut Tangerman and me were uh, both victims of the same attack ad <laughs> around the carbon tax last uh, <laughs> last election. Um, I hope that doesn't happen again. but, uh,
4: although it was pretty amateur.
0: It was fun, though. I mean, they had a little... They had, like... It was good publicity. They had uh, a nozzle for a gas pump on its side with a dollar sign oozing out in gasoline. (laughs) Well, actually, no, you had... So the one against you was uh, old people in blankets.
4: Yeah, old... Chestnut
0: Tangerine wants to freeze old people to death. (laughs) I you can't afford the heat. That's what they were trying to say. I wanted
4: saying. to double the... <clears throat> right. I, I wanted to raise the uh, the excise tax on, on fuels a half a cent <laughs> in order to pay for weatherization programs, um, which yeah. meant that I was... Attacking oil. Free, freezing old people out of their homes <laughs> by raising the price of heating oil.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well... Yeah, actually, so I'm, trying to, I'm going to see if I can loop that topic into the topic at hand. Heating, uh, cold, long, cold winters, right? Here in Vermont, we have a very, uh, very dark, sort of depressing season that's really long. Do you think that that has a lot to do with our addiction problem in this state, uh, long, cold winters? <laughs> yeah, okay, so we got full mouths...
3: I
1: think that our climate impacts mood disorders, and there's an intersection between mood disorders and mental health and addiction, but I don't think that our climate alone explains it because there's more factors involved, such as patterns of prescription, drug distribution in the past that got people on opioids. If that hadn't happened, we might see alcoholism and other things. You know connected with it the, i think the opioid crisis is more complex but there is an intersection between mood disorders and there and an even bigger intersection between trauma physical emotional and mental and addiction so do you think it's worse in this
0: in the state of vermont as compared to the rest of the country or the states nearby i i can't answer that least, i mean i'm i'm only I'm asking you for a theory, a general theory, more than any,
1: like, obviously, you're not, you know, I don't speculate be, on things like that. I don't think it's good practice to speculate. Really? You know, yeah. I think it's better to look at research, which is one of Selena's specialties, like, looking at studies, looking at research, and making, making decisions from that. Like, I would not make some sort of speculation based on what I've even seen, because I'm only seeing a small piece of what's happening i'm seeing like the urban manifestation of the opioid crisis in burlington i'm not on first-hand level seeing how it plays out in a small town so what so what is that do you see
0: people in burlington and in rutland uh i guess in standard (laughs) where people are uh, uh out on the street high on something definitely i do yeah we um, don't have streets. So. In, in Rutland, uh, yes. Yeah, we, yeah you,
1: know, you guys got roads? <laughs> yeah, right. I was also an outreach worker. No <laughs> so doubt. I, when I was an outreach worker, that's what I did all day long. You know, and as an outreach worker, we would hang out on Church Street and meet the kids who were homeless and build relationships with them. And then from those relationships, try to get them additional help that they would need one way that harm reduction played out in that work, maybe a specific example yeah. for listeners, that to, just to make it real, you know, you meet a person on the street and you build a relationship, you get to know them a little bit, hear their story, you invite them back to the outreach center for free food, you, help, you, you engage them in cooking meals for themselves, let them use the showers and the laundry, try to help them brainstorm safe places to stay, whether yeah. it's the shelter or people they know, once you build that relationship, the idea is to try to shift the focus onto how they can take care of themselves. So one creative thing we did is making salves for their injection site wounds. Uh-huh. So engaging them in making like herbal salves with herbalists who would come in that they could then apply to their track, track marks to help the scars heal. So what are salves? A salve is like a, a blend of, of oils and plant medicine to, that helps a wound heal. Oh yeah? So, An ointment. An ointment, yeah. So, so would, it's like
0: a holistic kind of... Med, or, yeah. yeah, so
1: one thing we would do is uh, we would just help them learn how to heal their body themselves and then in that those kind of small actions empower people to then feel like they can change their condition and access greater levels of care and you know another thing we would do is we would provide people with condoms and bleach kits because the condoms would allow them to engage in their sexual behavior in safer ways and reduce the spread of HIV and the bleach kits would allow them to clean their needles when they reuse them so that they wouldn't spread diseases that way does HIV still get spread a lot yes from from needles
0: yes
3: low HIV infection rates in the state of Vermont compared to other states and it's partly because we've had really strong programs, harm reduction programs, like Vermont Cares, but also like Safe Recovery, which is a huge um, syringe exchange, clean needle program based out of Burlington that serves actually people all around the state and even people across the lake in New York. And unfortunately, um, because our HIV infection rates have been so low, Mm -hmm. because of the success of those programs, Vermont is actually no longer eligible for some center for disease control funding that um, was funding safe recovery. So they're, they're really down to... So minimal staff and possibly.
0: How much money are, are we losing out on because of that? Uh, uh, that we would have uh, or we used to get?
3: Oh, it's like I no, think four to four
0: hundred thousand.
3: Yeah, it's it's supposed to half a million dollars. That's been true for a couple of years, and the state has um, made up a little bit of the difference, but not much. But um, you know, places that haven't had strong uh, syringe exchange programs in place like rural indiana had a huge hiv outbreak probably two years ago now and the state scrambled to put syringe exchange programs in place so it's really really critical that we make sure we retain these programs because you know certainly hiv and and what's more prevalent is hepatitis C being spread, or endocarditis, which is a heart disease that people get um, from IV drug use, and particularly from opiate IV drug use, that's incredibly dangerous and and costly also to our...
0: Because every time a needle goes into the the vein, the bloodstream is clogged with some new
3: potential for infection depending on the injecting practices so that's where the idea of harm reduction comes in right like the idea is um, not just to deliver the message of abstinence but also say here's if you are an IV drug user here's how you can keep yourself safe right and sometimes that first step of starting to take care of yourself even in some small way like getting clean needles starting to use safer injecting practices is kind of an on-ramp to the next step of thinking about treatment access thinking yeah, about yeah. recovery So, it's the power of harm reduction um
0: on the topic of safe uh, injection sites have you have you gotten a lot of backlash from I guess probably the conservative side of things in that regard. And what and what do you say to people who say that's the last thing we need in this state is more uh, acceptance of usage and, uh, and creating places for safe places for youth for addicts to go shoot up? That's terrible. Blah blah. blah. What do you? What's your response to that?
3: Well, so I did introduce a bill on safe injection sites last year that would uh, create kind of a state regulatory framework for that, and it has not really moved. Um, I think a comparable bill in the Senate got referred to the Governor's Opioid Council for some...
0: Who introduced it in the Senate?
3: uh, John Rogers and Chris Pearson. Rogers, huh? Are they co-sponsors of that? on the Senate side, but what I would say to people about that concept, and I was thinking about it when you were asking about is there a lot of public drug use in kind of our urban center, and the the answer is yes, there's definitely public drug use and, and also discarded needles that show up in the community. And what safe injection sites do, it is a hard concept to wrap your brain around, but the idea of a safe injection site is it's similar to a syringe exchange, it has a lot of the features of a syringe exchange, but it's also a place where you can go and inject safely, have medical personnel on hand, have... Overdose prevent prevention tools on hand and there are about a hundred safe injection sites operating Around the world there was actually an underground safe injection site operating in the United States. It's been studied by uh, peer-reviewed researchers and shown to be really effective and there are You know probably close to a hundred peer-reviewed studies on these sites at this point and what they show us is that they prevent overdose fatalities. No one has ever died at a safe injection site. Really? They are incredibly effective at getting people referred to treatment. So they are—they build that trust that Brian talked about with with people, and then they often will um, be successful in referring people to treatment. People, the common argument that I hear is that they enable drug use, and that's the wrong message to send. And I, in fact, our our uh, public safety commissioner here in the state of Vermont has been putting that message out there, but there are studies after study that show that they do not create new drug users, they do not, right? Right. Yeah, people,
0: people don't go to a safe injection site for their first time.
3: Right, exactly. Yeah. And they reduce, they do not create upticks in crime in neighborhoods that host them and in fact they actually reduce public drug use and discarded needles huh. in neighborhoods that
0: that hosts them, should so. that yeah, should I go? There. So, the, so oh, yeah. Robin <laughs> Chester Tenderman is the—he's the leader of the minority minority party, the progressive party. So, in Vermont, we have the only tripartisan state legislature in the country. And uh, he just pointed out uh, a neighbor, a neighboring table, which is uh, oh, <laughs> seated at that table are five or six. Uh, Republicans, <laughs> so they don't really
1: identify with this line of uh, logic. Some okay. do, uh, though. Yeah, I wouldn't generalize. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Which ones? I'm not going to name names okay, on the fine. radio, you know? but maybe you can have them on your show sometime. Yeah. Well, and
3: I would just say, yeah. to kind of close the loop on your initial question... When I first introduced that bill, I got a lot of pushback. And sure, there's definitely still some pushback about it. But in a two-year period, the amount of people who have come around on that concept right. is incredible. Our Jimmy County State's Attorney, you know, created a task force to look at the issue. It includes medical professionals, law enforcement, prosecutors, um, all kinds of people and they came to the conclusion that this is a really important tool that we should be thinking about very seriously
4: so there's a (laughs) a program in rutland called project vision which you may have heard about and and you too may actually know more about it than i do but it's a broad-based community uh, approach to opioid treatment prevention and bringing together police prosecutors Social workers, clergy, employers, um, anybody, business people, yeah, anybody who can come to the table. Um, and and the really good thing about it was when they started, they had no money, so they couldn't throw money at the problem. They had to work with what they had, mm-hmm. and and it and I think that kind of dialogue and approach really works to change people's attitudes. When the police say this is not. This is not an enforcement issue. We cannot arrest our way out of this. Right. Well, I think there's. We have a problem though with people thinking that
0: this is um, this is a choice that heroin, heroin injection that people choose to do that. You know.
1: Well, they do choose to do it
0: though. Yes, but they don't really. I mean, they choose to at uh, one time or maybe it's the first several times, but then, I uh, as far as my guess is that you're probably pretty damn near addicted uh, after your first try or second, right? I don't, I think that after at that point, it's not like it's not a choice anymore. It becomes a dependency. It's a, it's I mean, I, I do have still a little bit of reservations about the idea that it's a disease because I don't really understand that entirely. I do submit to that logic because I believe that you're, I mean, in that regard, it's not a choice for a, What, for what do disease. you mean by a disease, though? That, I mean, that's, I, am I wrong? The consensus has been that addiction, addiction is a disease. Alcoholism
1: it's, it's, is a disease. If, 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 it is, if you define disease as a physical change in your being, yeah. then it is, because when you become addicted to anything, your brain becomes wired in a certain way, which and your your chem- brain chemistry changes, and your genes could even change. So it is very much a physical thing. But the reason I I say it's a choice is because in addiction, people can choose to get help and to break out of the pattern and to recover. Right. And so to say it's not a choice, I think, is disempowering of people. See, yeah. Like okay. you know, like like some people have chronic inflammatory diseases and what they eat makes it worse. But,
4: and, and, and I will own that as one
1: of those people who don't fully understand what's what makes me have pain. Yeah. But I've been trying to figure out what choices will make my pain better. And I know some choices are bad for me, but I still do them. I think to say that it's not someone's choice completely is disempowering. But I also think blaming people right. because they have developed a condition is not fair, especially when we look at what led to the development of that condition. And maybe we should talk a little bit about what causes addiction, what makes somebody become addicted to something because the initial factors may not be a choice. Well, right. keep in mind
2: that probably 60 to 70% of people who will suffer from substance use disorder right now um, uh, got that way from prescription medication. Exactly. So, you know, uh, 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 Purdue Pharma, who produced OxyContin for all those years, uh-huh. has handed out or settled in the tune of $684 million in lawsuits for overprescribing and for misinforming doctors and the public about their product. So when you consider that um, doctors considered pain as their fifth symptom, and readily prescribed uh, opioids for that pain relief. Even though the research now is very um, uh, consistently uh, suggests that um, opioids are not the best treatment for long-term chronic pain, Um, the the, the pharmaceutical companies continue to try and sell their product to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. So that attributes to it. and, And when you get involved in that way, It's not quite a choice it's not really a choice that you have because you're taking that so you feel better and it comes to a point where you're no longer feeling better because you're not getting the pain relief that you should be from the man in the long term and that um, and and now you have a craving for them and when the doctor says no more you're on the street buying heroin and uh, so how do you explain though
0: somebody I guess I don't want to be classist when I make this I make this inquiry, but let's say you have like a white-collar sort of an affluent individual who breaks their a bone in their body. Somebody who is, is well-educated and, and tends to have a higher standard of living uh, breaks a bone, is prescribed for a, a two-month healing process. Or I'm not sure what it would be realistic, but they get a year's or, a, or a,
2: two to three months is what we've heard as 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 what they consider long-term, um, uh, uh, high-dose opioids for chronic pain.
0: Okay, so like, let's say they get prescribed for two or three times as much time as they actually need. To. And then th- that person uh, continues to, to take the d- daily dosage or however much. And then they have this addiction. How does that individual then go find heroin? How do they, What what connects, what's the...
2: Well, they probably well, from to my experience and clients that I represented or that we that I dealt with are that um, they first start going to trying to keep uh, pills coming. You know, they're trying to go to pills. Pills are very expensive. You know, an Oxycontin is eighty dollars a value on the street. So when they can no longer afford that, is when they go to heroin, and that's because it's a, it's a, a matter of economics. It's cheaper and. And, and readily available.
3: Right. And because we've actually started to regulate our access to prescription opiates yep. more, the flip side of that is that they're less readily available, and people turn more quickly to to. Um, Illegal substances like street heroin. Yeah. So there's there there are actually some pretty interesting. There's some pretty interesting research and cautions about how much you should regulate your uh, prescription access to opiates and how much and what that does to drive people to yeah. an illegal, a purely illegal like heroin. Right. Well, what it's we have been
2: seeing recently are about- physicians are now monitoring these situations much more closely. We had some testimony from a pain specialist, a MD pain specialist, just last week in the Healthcare Care and Human Services Committee. And, you know, he spoke about now... Um, where a doctor's not just saying, uh, the physicians are not just saying, "Okay, no more for you," because you're, you're you know, you have a problem. Right. What they're doing is monitoring it much more closely, and then getting into a place, getting to a place where they can uh, assist in uh, with this assist assist their patient in, in tapering and and getting into a better situation and eventually uh, into recovery. Uh-huh. And I think that's made a, quite a difference, you know. We're about, we have between seven and 8,000 uh, people who suffer from sus- substance use disorder in treatment right now, but we have close to 20,000 that are not. Um, and what we found is that, going back to uh, Selena's um, uh, safe injection sites, um, You know, people are more likely to get involved in treatment um, through a safe injection site um, than they would normally uh, without a safe injection site, and I think that's an important thing because what we have to do now is reach those 20,000 people that are not in in treatment because some would say that we have treatment covered, you know, do, you do
0: Do we know who those 20,000 no. people are? not really. Do we well, know that that's the number?
3: I think some of the people who are working directly with these people do know, but that is the number that the health department estimates.
0: And is that a, just an estimation?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, sure. So it
0: could be... A bit more. i'm betting
1: it's more because often people because of the stigma yeah. of substances people hide it
0: and i bet you that goes as far as to not even answer honestly honest, on an anonymous
1: survey or even tell your doctor <laughs> sometimes yeah.
3: yes i've heard many stories of individuals who had fatal overdoses and their friends and family did not know many. that they were using yeah I want to just go back to your question yeah. about um, one of your earlier questions and just talk about a really important talk that I heard um, by John Brooklyn, who's one of the first yep. doctors to really deliver methadone access in the He's state. He's
2: the physician in charge of uh, MAT in the state right now. Yeah,
3: yeah and yeah, at the Chittenden Clinic. Where and he? Where he? With? Uh, he's in the Greater Burlington area, but he's worked with methadone clinics across the state, and he works at the Chittenden Clinic, which yeah. is the methadone clinic in Chittenden County. But I saw a really powerful talk that he gave about the science of addiction, and I think your question about is it a choice, when is it a choice, I mean, he he talked really clearly about... Um, that part of what contributes to addiction is brain receptors and you might have a brain receptor that leaves you really exposed to a certain kind of reaction to a certain substance Uh you might be fine with another kind of substance and you know he really talked about it as just this like, some people can experiment with opiates and be fine. Yeah. When i have taken opiate-derived medications, I have not liked that triangle.
0: Oh, that's okay. Thank you, Courtney. No, you're good. That's
3: I have... That experience has not been good for me, and I've had no desire to continue. But for someone else, that might be something
0: that sits on their brain receptors in a way that just So did he like, do a TED talk or something? No, yeah, I just did yeah, we'll a We can do a, a break This would be a commercial break and then we'll go back to that topic We're So we're back on the heat of the house with me, Jay Hooper your favorite representative and Chip Troyano, and Robin Chestnut-Tangerman and Brian Chena and Selena Colburn Five terrific... Le- we're, the, we're the dream team. They call us the dream team in the legislature. <laughs> Everyone does. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, oh, Lies. Like, it's compared one of us to Michael Jordan. So that's all a joke. They don't call us that. But it'd be kind of cool if somebody came out with a cartoon, a political cartoon of a bunch of us. Anyway, what were we talking about, Selena, when the waitress came with our food, which was k- terrific food. J. Morgan, Capitol Plaza. Eh not allowed to have. Shots by. Yeah, no, they're going to... I'm going to send them an invoice. It'll be good for the station. So
3: so I was just talking about a, a talk I had heard by John Brooklyn um, that was part of a Howard Center just community lecture series where he talked about the science of addiction. And one of the things he said that really has stuck with me is i thought about... Um, <laughs> just this issue and and people's experience is that you know it really is kind of this cocktail of substance and brain receptors so you might have a brain receptor that would um, predispose you to opioid addiction but you might never try an opioid and you might be fine Mm -hmm. or you know on the other side of that you might have a brain receptor um where you are able to experiment with opioids and walk away from that. and then but if you happen to have a brain receptor that is really susceptible to that particular substance you and you try that substance you are in a really really tough place and so just thinking about like Brian said about about brain chemistry um, for sure there are things you can do and there are choices you can make and it's also partly about your physiology and your brain chemistry and your kind of how you move through life and what you expose yourself right. to and don't and so yeah different
0: yeah, for everybody different for everybody yeah. and it is
1: but something to keep in mind when, when I talk about people having choices that you do have a choice once you're addicted. I mean, you can choose to go out and find a substance and use it, or you could choose to get sick and die, right? You have a choice. I mean, it's it becomes survival for people. So they're choosing what's gonna help them survive day to day when they go out and they find the thing that they need to maintain the brain chemistry because the withdrawal from opioids is not the same as the withdrawal from cigarettes, or the withdrawal from alcohol, or the withdrawal from from porn or whatever people's risky behavior is. like, But all of these things affect our brain chemistry and all of these things affect the connections in our brain. And then all of these things affect our behavior and it becomes this cycle. And so a, a key thing to remember is if we want to help people make healthier choices, we need to give people alternative choices. And when a person's prescription is taken away by their doctor, what choice do they have? To survive in that situation if a if a person can only get what they need on the street what choice do what choice do they have so by providing people with variety of choices at different levels we provide people a pathway to recovery and so that's why it's important for especially as policymakers, to be thinking about what are we what are our choices and how are they affecting the choices of other people if we have a society that stigmatizes drug use and does not give people options for recovery we're basically asking people to to choose between withdrawal death or continuing addiction people can have have weaned themselves off of opioids and other substances and they've survived. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that's a tough choice to ask someone to make. Right. If we can give people other options, we can give them pathways to make healthier choices. You know, By having a needle exchange or a syringe exchange, right. Right. you give people the choice to go somewhere where they can engage in in a choice that's gonna take care of their body and maybe open up pathways so to other is, options. So uh, is
0: our safe sh- uh, shooting, what, is that the term, safe shoot? That the, is not the technical
3: no? term. Okay. Oh, we I'm don't sorry. say safe shooting. All right,
0: that's just what the media we say does.
3: safe injection yeah. facility or yep. safe consumption facility.
1: Uh-huh. Yes, and something else or to site. remember about those facilities is that you, if people are there and there's medical staff around, if something goes wrong, then there's access to Narcan. So you can save people's lives. It buys them more time to, to recover. Another another thing to point out is, like, is medication-assisted treatment. That if a person can go to their doctor and get medication-assisted treatment from their primary care physician, that's a choice. You're making another choice for them besides getting something on the street. And then by medication-assisted treatment allows people to engage in a way to deal with that biochemical issue uh-huh. through a healthier psychosocial choice. And that just brings a person another step closer to to, to greater wellness. So but
4: is there a role here for making the choices not neutral, but incentivizing one over the other? I mean, you know, right now we, the, the choices we are incentivizing is negative, it's stigmatizing, but, but is there a, a way, of, you know, if, if we're creating an, a, an even choice, a choice without pressure, and I don't know what's the better term, and I'm asking this curiously, I'm not, right, right. I'm not suggesting it. Um, but if it's a neutral choice where there, you have an illegal drug or a, a, a safe treatment option, you're choosing between two drugs, you're not choosing a, necessarily, you're not being incentivized to choose a path
1: off of addiction. Is there a role for for that pressure? Well, I think affordability is one piece. If we had a, a universal healthcare system where people could get ra- a rapid response, instant access to healthcare without any barriers, it would help. But we have a system that's filled with barriers, and there's all different degrees of barriers for people. Um, so I, I would say one way to incentivize a healthier choice is to make that healthier choice more affordable and easier to get to than the, than the unhealthy choice. If it's easier to scrounge up $10 and buy a bag of heroin to get through the night than it is to go to a clinic and get and get a medication, you're incentivizing the, the illegal unhealthy choice.
3: But I think also, I mean, medication-assisted treatment, so that really is methadone, buprenorphine, or in rare cases, something called Vivitrol. Those are medications that can actually sit on the opioid receptors in your brain in different ways um, and kind of help you deal with the cravings and... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yep, so that's what that does and it's really... Is that the
0: idea behind Suboxone too and Yeah, and Suboxone
3: is, is another... Uh, Buprenorphine and Suboxone are I see. Yep. pretty much the same thing. Um,
0: Well, don't worry. Everybody who's listening is a scientist.
3: So, you know, know, one of the things that I think is challenging is that those have really been proven in study after study to be kind of the gold treatment, um, the gold standard for treatment of opioid dependence, which doesn't mean that people who ultimately don't want to be on any kind of medication you know that that's certainly a choice too but we've stigmatized to some extent medication assisted treatment too even yeah. though we know that that is what works Right. and so one of the things I mean, you sort of led us off by saying um, that we had Not done a a ton this legislative biennium on this issue, and um, I've been frustrated by our lack of financial investments for sure. But one thing we did do that I think is
0: last week or the week
3: really powerful. yeah, Yeah, we kind of finalized it last week. Was that we seriously expanded access to medication-assisted treatment right. in our correction system, but where... Did
0: we, but did we take testimony from the Canadians? Uh, oh, we should have... <laughs> I don't remember Can when Frenier stood up on the floor. <laughs>
1: Thank you. He was, talking about the, he was talking about a different bill. He was talking about the oh, pharmacy bill. So, oh, you're bills. talking about something else. So rewind. Yep. Oh, I'm <laughs> talking about a bill
3: called S-166. Okay. So it originated in the Senate, although there were a number of bills in the House that yeah. um, myself and other representatives introduced throughout the biennium on this issue. And um, so for a long time in our correction system... People who had been uh, prescribed Suboxone or were accessing methadone at clinics in the community, if they became incarcerated, they were only allowed access to those drugs for 30 days, in some settings 90 days, and then eventually 120 days, but then they would be yanked off of these medications that had kept them in recovery. If they, say, were sentenced to six months, in our correction system, they would be just taken off their medication. So, you know, I think what I've heard people say a lot that resonated with me is you would hopefully never take, you know, someone off their heart medication or their insulin at some random number of days. So what this bill does is allows people to continue accessing those medications for as long as it's medically necessary, but it also, Says that people who are coming in who aren't already on those medications will be screened for opioid dependence, and will then be able to start accessing suboxone or methadone in Vermont incarceration, incarcerative settings in Vermont prisons, essentially. Yeah. And that is huge because a lot of people uh, who with opioid use disorder do end up with criminal justice system interactions and a very uh, similar program was enacted in Rhode Island a couple of years ago now and the results have been really stunning they they have reduced overdose fatalities in their population of people who were recently incarcerated by 60% and that was so significant that it actually helped the state of Rhode Island bring down their overall fatal overdose rate, which in Vermont, uh-huh. by contrast, we had our highest uh, recorded incidence of uh-huh. fatal overdoses so these in people 2017. are
4: incarcerated and no longer in Rhode Island, were incarcerated and were released.
3: Right. There's an incredibly high risk for fatal overdose for people who have been incarcerated, who have either had to detox from uh, illegal uh, opiates like heroin, or who have been cut off from access to their medication, which is actually pretty common practice uh, nationally. They're at Far, far greater risk is it because of they they
0: go back when they go back to the drug they do the same dose that they always did and their tolerance is way lower.
3: That's they exactly don't, right, yeah. and that also it's a you know people, someone may have really achieved some degree of recovery while they're incarcerated or maybe not. There's also an illegal drug market right. in correction settings, right. but. Um, It's such a stressful time when you're released from prison, you have to find housing, you have to find employment, you may have collateral consequences from your Conviction that make it really hard to find housing, employment. If you have a felony offense, for yeah. example, um, and so people are very prone to relapse. They may be coming back into a situation where, with friends and family who are also engaging in right. Right. these behaviors, and then the yes, the tolerance is really lowered. So there's like study after study that shows that people. Coming out of prison are at incredible risk for fatal overdose compared yep. to the normal population, yep. and um, so this this so, is like a huge leap forward that right. this is happening. So I beg it's your really pardon. Exciting.
0: I was making trying to make a joke about a different bill. I thought we were talking about um, the the bill uh, opening up the Canadian market to Vermonters. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about
1: the, the, the there there's two pharmaceutical bills that we passed. So would would, would one of you want to describe them or, or? Yeah, one of them allows for the state of Vermont to explore creating a, a drug importation program that would bring prescription bro- drugs in from Canada at a lower price than they are purchased in the United States. By as much as ten times lower, right? I mean, in some cases. In some cases. Uh, yeah. in some cases. Yeah.
0: So it's making drugs that people need cheaper, to more affordable,
1: which yeah. is like what we want. We could probably do a show just on that bill. Yeah. It opens, <laughs> a whole, it opens up a whole other thing. So it was a good. It was a good thing. But we don't only do
0: silly, foolish things in Montpelier. We, we uh... like keeping
1: farm animals out of the road. <laughs> Hey! Don't pick on my bills. That was important. It is a good bill. Uh, yeah, it's a good bill. Yeah. So maybe you should focus on your own farm first. <laughs> we,
0: we don't let the goats get out. Actually, there was one time we were we were housing a couple heifers for a, a guy over in Tunbridge, and his uh, there was one one of his jerseys kept getting out and would always hang out in the road. It ended up being sort of a real life example of why my bill is important my bill was to make it so that it's not the farmers fault the farmer cannot be held criminally liable if an animal causes an accident that results in an injury uh, in the road it wasn't your constituent. no it wasn't no Craig Mosier in in Killington was uh, he, he's your constituent. No, he's Jim Harrison's
4: constituent.
0: Oh, is it him? Yeah. But I know the
4: the case. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, that, that was what inspired it. But it's been on the wall. I don't think it's going to move very quickly. But um, so, Brian, does uh, do safe do safe injection sites? Or is that a part of the harm reduction
1: theory? Of, uh, a safe injection site would be considered a harm reduction measure, approach. Yeah. Any any approach that tries to meet people where they're at and provide them with access to ways to make their to make safer choices is 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 a harm reduction approach. And so, you know, some of the things that we have would be like outreach facilities or um, outreach workers, bleach kits to clean needles, right. syringe exchange facilities. I think something we need is safe injection facilities. Giving police Narcan to give out, uh, to, to administer, is is an example of harm reduction. Do
0: do a lot of overdose deaths happen at the at the hands of police officers
1: when they're responding? Do they uh, is that a thing? I or think it it's, I think it's probably more that they're saving people well, I know, than that's happen at their hands. I think that's that that, that people are being saved by the police but, because but, of Narcan. Uh, so so they so that already I thought it, you were saying it, it saying is do you know anything about the statistics?
3: I uh I, so I can tell you that Prior to being a legislator, I was a city councilor in Burlington, and I worked very hard to get the Burlington Police Department to carry Narcan, and they were resistant for a time, uh, and then and very supportive, and now they do. And the argument against it, and this is common among police departments, if there is a fire department or emergency response. unit in place that has a good response time, they'll say, we don't need it, it's one more thing to do, we have EMTs who do this. So that was the message for um, about a year in Burlington and then a new police chief was more amenable, Prior to that, we had gotten the mayor on board, so it was something that was coming no matter what. But when they started um, a couple years ago carrying Narcan, they immediately were reversing like an overdose a week. I mean, it, it's very, very common now that yeah. this is a routine part of their work. So I don't have an actual yeah, no, statistic on it, but I know that right out of the gate, um, it's something that they, they use frequently. Yeah. Well,
0: I think we're 54 minutes in here, so I think uh, I'm going to ask each of you if you want to make a closing remark or not. That's fine. But it's been a uh, pleasure dining with you this evening. Thank you for joining me. So I have a progressive out of Burlington, Brian Chena. His district mate, Representative Selena Colburn, uh, also a progressive. Chip Toriano, one of the the home dogs uh, in the Democratic Party, uh, he's one of the, he's one of the good guys. <laughs> he represents Standard and other towns around it.
4: <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> Hardway. Hardway. <laughs> Hardway. <laughs> <laughs> and Robin Robin Chestnut Tangerman is uh, the leader of the the tribe of seven progressives. Uh, he represents. Small but mighty. Uh, small but mighty. Yeah, these guys are a real a real thorn in our side of the. We're the me and my my gang of the majority Democrats. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you. I appreciate it, Courtney. So, um, I guess if anybody wants to say, here's what we think. I think we should do or whatever. Go ahead. This is your time. But thank you guys for coming on.
3: I'll say one more thing that I know that's happening um, in Burlington outside, and it's not happening under any kind of legislative direction, but I think it's really exciting and really important is that there's a pilot program moving forward with the howard center the uvm medical center and the city of burlington that would provide low barrier interim access to buprenorphine or suboxone which is one of these medication assisted treatment drugs that's it's pretty regulated but it's not like a methadone clinic where you have to show up every day and um And so they're looking at ways to actually provide low barrier access to this because right now when people go through our hub-and-spoke system, even when people step up and say they're ready for help, they're having to wait sometimes weeks. I mean, the average, I think, is over two weeks for someone from coming forward and getting into the system to actually getting on a treatment protocol. And so... Um, this would be like close to same day access to buprenorphine, and I think could make a huge, huge difference. So I'm, I'm really excited about what the city and its partners are doing with that, and I think that's a model that we're going to want to pay attention to in the legislature and think about bringing to other. Parts I
4: think of the, the state. ability to react at that moment when somebody's ready, you need to be able to respond immediately. That's all assessment time that does. That weeks that you speak about
2: is assessment time, but I wanted to uh, conclude you. by saying that uh, in 2016 session we allocated 420 thousand dollars for the new hu- uh, hub in St Albans um, that greatly relieved uh, waiting lists in both in Chittenden County and Franklin County.
3: Yeah, I just, I'm sorry. That's I okay. just wanted-
0: See that's, that's what we call. Who is that from? Was it Alice or was it no. the one closer to us or the one, the one closer?
3: Okay, so that's Patty. Pat,
2: Pat, yes. yeah. Yeah. We need to send them some So, so um, just just to get back to it, is that uh, this year the commissioner of health came to us uh, with a level spending plan. Uh, when we really were looking to allocate new funds for recovery centers which are really an important piece um, of uh, reintegrating people into the community and to uh, uh, get a lot of things done. So um, we went scrounging around and found $167,000 myself and my seatmate to uh, put into recovery centers. Um, So um, right now we're kind of riding on a uh, yeah, we did. We've made a lot of progress, but you know what? We've had more overdose deaths in the last year than we have in any other year. So we really need a lot more work, and we really cannot afford to level fund these this this crisis any longer.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, something I'll add in just to conclude: I think there's a lot more we we could be doing, but I think one important point I like to make from a broader level and from the perspective of harm reduction is that we need to treat substance use as a health care issue and not as a crime. And as long as we continue to felonize the possession of drugs and we continue to make it a crime for people to use substances, we're gonna keep people away from what they need to heal. So I think we need to really look at ways to shift public policy so that substance use is treated equal to all other health care yep. and that we provide greater access to that health care for all Vermonters. Sure. That's, that's
0: profound.
4: I, I, I think you're right. I look forward you're, you're to the, the opportunity to talk with you about something I know something about <laughs> in so the future. So Robin's on the Energy Committee. Energy and Technology <laughs> Committee dealing with yeah. <laughs>
0: energy, telecommunications. So that was some
1: real tripartisan work yeah. there. I, I would prefer if you call me a progressive Democrat Hybrid, because it's not a good look when I say that, and then you're like, hmm.
0: "They're all, we're all good guys. How about that? We're all the good."
3: No,
1: you're their Our she's, the, she's, Patty Patricia
0: McCoy from the Republican table nearby bought our first round of drinks, so that I mean they're not so bad. <laughs>
4: <laughs> she's she's uh,
0: contributing.